Well, uh, good morning. Good to be with you guys. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. It's so good to have you. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. We are so glad that you are here. If there are any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected or plugged in, then we'd love to do that. And I just want to echo Aaron's comments about Vision Night. Um, it can feel like that is like, oh yeah, if you're super involved with River City, that's who should go to that. Man, I would just really encourage you, if, if you're checking out this church, if you're trying to see what this church is all about and what we're like, man, coming to Vision Night is just a, would be a really great way for you to find out what really matters, what, what's important at River City. What are these people like? What do we really care about? And what does it look like for us to live that out? And so I just really want to invite you, no matter how long you've been a part of River City or how long you've been coming Come to Vision Night, I think it'll be really helpful, and, and hopefully it'll be encouraging for you as you see what God is up to and where, he's, where he is leading this church and what it might look like for you to be involved. Um, so uh, this fall, however, we have been uh, studying on Sunday mornings here. We've been going through the first, uh, first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and what we've seen in Genesis so far is that Genesis is so foundational to our faith, not because it shows us the, the scientific how of creation, but because it shows us the who of creation. See, Genesis is all about revealing God. You see, the Bible as a whole is really not a book about us. It's a book for us, and the reason it's for us is because it's a about God. It reveals who he is and, and what he's like. And we see that, especially in Genesis 1 and 2, as, as, as we see the, the creation of the world. But we don't just find out who God is in Genesis 1 and 2. What we find out so far is that we find out who we are as well. And what we've seen over and over throughout the course of Genesis 1 and 2 is that we are made in the image of God. And we saw how Genesis 1 makes a really big deal about what it means that humanity is made in the image of God. And so we, we spent actually four weeks kind of doing a little a deep dive on, on the image of God, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, and talking about the meaning and the implications of that, because it's like just really big deal, foundational stuff for what it looks like for informing and transforming how we relate to God and how we relate to one another and how we just really big stuff. And so, and then... Two weeks ago, we got to Genesis chapter 3 and what theologians refer to as the fall. And what we saw in Genesis chapter 3 wasn't just the first sin. What we saw was the root of all sin. We saw how the root of all sin isn't, isn't just a, a mistake. It isn't just a bad decision. They said the root of all sin is, is rebellion. It's a, it's a rejection of God's authority and it's an enthroning of ourselves. See, at the root of all sin, we said, is that we want to be God. We want to be the ones that decide what is right and true and good. We want to be the ones that decide what will bring about our joy. We want to be the ones who decide what will bring about the blessing and satisfaction that we are looking for. And so we reject God's authority and we choose to do things our own way. And that's at the root of what all sin is. And so uh, that's why the consequences of sin are so severe, because sin, as it's true, what we said is that sin is mutinous rebellion. But the bad news didn't end there. We saw last week, as we studied in Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel, we saw sin spreading. We saw it spreading wider and wider from individuals to families and then on to society. And we saw it spreading deeper and deeper into the hearts of humanity and becoming more hidden and more devious. And so by and large, what we've seen from Genesis chapter 3 and going on is, is this seemingly unhindered spread of sin. And we've seen God promise to defeat sin in Genesis 3 verse 15. We saw the proto-evangelion or the first proclamation of the gospel. And we saw in uh, Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, we, we saw God warning us about the danger of sin. But we haven't really seen God pushing back against the spread of sin yet. And that changes this morning because... This morning as we read Genesis chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, 
What we don't just see is, is God's mercy and blessing in the midst of sin. We, we see God's just judgment of sin. See, this morning we come face to face with the ultimate expression of the curse that sin brings into the world with it. You see, this morning we come face to face with death. How fitting in God's timing that that text would be in front of us the week of Halloween, huh? But despite all the skeletons that may have decorated your streets this week, we don't really actually like talking about death. We don't really like to talk about it. And when we do, we always try to soften it or we try to avoid it. We try to brush it off with humor. We say things like someone passed on or they went to a better place. We, we say they're pushing up daisies or maybe they're worm food now. And sometimes we don't say anything at all. Sometimes there's just a look and we can't use words because it's too painful. You see, why do we do that? Why do we try to soften death? Why do we try to, to push it off? Why do we try, to, why do we try to, to soften it and to make it more palatable? I think sometimes we're just trying to be kind to those who have lost loved ones, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think more often than not, the reason we try to soften death is because we are trying to avoid it. We're trying to avoid the discomfort of death. We are trying to avoid the pain of death. We are trying to avoid the inevitability of death. We do everything we can to avoid death. We take vitamins. We go to the doctor. We use anti-aging creams. We even eat vegetables and exercise. That's how bad it's gotten, right? You see, we are trying to avoid death because deep down what we know is that death is a curse, but it's a curse that no amount of modern technology or no amount of modern medicine can alleviate. You see, we can put death off for a while. We can avoid it for a while. We can stop thinking about it for a while. We can delay the signs, the imminent signs of death for a little while, but we cannot avoid it altogether because death is a curse that comes to everyone. Almost. Almost everyone. You see, as we study our passes this morning, we'll come face to face with the inevitability of death and the curse of sin, but we'll also see someone who escaped death. And who ultimately points us to the one who would defeat death all together. Oh, it's a good one this morning, you guys. It's really good. And the best part is that it's a genealogy. It's the stuff we always skip over. So I'm excited this morning to study it together and hopefully give you a new view into God's word as we see all of it as fruitful and good for our hearts and lives. And so, man, I can't wait to show you how rich God's word is, how it meets us in the place of our deepest need and so with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll dive into our study of God's word this morning. Jesus, we just come before you this morning, and God, we are so grateful that you would give us your word so that we might know you, that, that we might understand who you are and what you're like, and, and also that we might have hope. And God, as we come this morning, God, I just want to, God, we just come humbly, and we just say, like, as, as I preach and teach this morning, God, I just say, I do not have what I need of myself to do it. God, I need your spirit filling me so that that what I say this morning has power and is fruitful. God, and so we just come humbly as well, saying that we need you to be the one that is at work in our hearts. God, there's no amount of persuasive words that I could say this morning that would change us, but your spirit is the one who changes. And so we just want to come humbly, submit ourselves under the authority of your spirit and under the authority of your word. God, we pray that that would just be for our good, for our joy, but ultimately for your glory. And so we just need your help as we study your word this morning. God, thanks that you meet us in your word. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Genesis chapter 5 this morning, heading into chapter 6. Read with me here. This is the written account of Adam's family line. 
And when God created mankind, he made them in the, likeness and, in the likeness of God, and he created them male and female, and he blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. And when Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. And when Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. And when Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. He became, and after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. And when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. And when Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years. He had other sons and daughters, and altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years. And then he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. And he named his son Noah. And he said, we will comfort us in the labor and the painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed and after Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. And afterward, Noah was 500 years old. He became the father of Shem and Ham and Japheth. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit is not to contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. And for the, Neph- uh, for the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. And when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of the old, the, re- the men of renown. And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, as we read this morning, there's a pattern that would be pretty hard to miss, isn't there? Altogether, they lived X amount of years. And then they died. See, as we study this morning, we come face to face with death as the ultimate realization of the curse that sin brought into the world. But we see more than just the curse that death, the curse of death this morning. We see a God who is blessing in the midst of the curse. We see a God who is opposing sin through the curse. 
And we see ultimately a God who has authority over the curse. You see, there's bad news this morning, but there is really good news as well. So let's begin. The passage opens, and the first thing that we see is a reminder of God's blessing in the midst of the curse. In Genesis 1.26, we saw God on day six of the creation making humanity in his image. And we talked about that, how that was this incredible honor and privilege that God would make us in his image. And it means that we both have the dignity and the honor of being able to both know God and to serve as his representatives here on earth, reflecting his nature and his character into the world. And here again in verse 1, we're reminded of this incredible truth. And what's really significant about seeing that reminder here after Genesis 3, after the fall, after sin enters the world, as one commentator writes, is that even in a cursed world, human beings are still image bearers of God that may yet serve him and enjoy his blessings. You see, while sin has marred the image of God in us, it has not removed it. But what's more that we see here is not just the God who is allowing humanity to continue to be his image bearers. We see a God who is continuing to bless humanity as his image bearers. In Genesis 1.28, we saw how God blessed humanity and he says to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And here in this genealogy of Adam's line, we see a record of God's continued gracious blessing on Adam and his family in the midst of their fallenness. Over and over in the passage, we we see humanity being fruitful and multiplying. We see Adam became the father of Seth, and he had other sons and daughters. And Seth became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. And on and on and on it goes. You see, the pattern is generation after generation. And it is God blessing humanity causing them to be fruitful and to multiply. You see, babies and children are a blessing. We love kids here at River City. We see children as a blessing from God here at River City. This world often looks at children as a burden, sometimes even worse, as a curse sometimes. But that is not the case. See, the Bible is radically clear that children are a blessing from God. I have two kids of my own. I cherish them. I thank God for my kids. I need breaks from them but I still love them. See, I've come to know God in ways that I could never have imagined through my kids. And God has grown me and and transformed me and God has matured me as a follower of him through my kids in ways that just would not have happened otherwise. And although kids can be hard, although they can be challenging, oh, they are a blessing. There is nothing that I would trade my kids for. One of the things that brings me the greatest joy is to give them a hug and to just be with them you see children are a blessing and the multiplication of humanity as we see here in genesis chapter 5 is evidence of god's blessing so we see god continuing to bless humanity with the dignity of being his image bearers through and through the blessing of children but there is another way we see god blessing humanity that's even more basic yet more astounding You see, we don't just see new life. We don't just see the multiplication of life here in Genesis 5. We see long lives. And that should really stand out to us, not because they're a lot longer than the lives that we live, but because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 17, God says, For when you eat from the tree, you will certainly die. You see, not only did Adam not die right away, we see he had a a long life. You see, every second that Adam breathed after the mutinous rebellion of the first sin, that was a blessing from God. It was a gracious 
gift from God. You see, God did not owe Adam anything, and he does not owe you and I anything either. In fact, every breath that you and I take is a merciful and gracious gift from God because just like Adam, what we deserve, what our sin deserves is not life, it's death. So the fact that Adam had any life at all should surprise us, but that he had a long life is simply emphasizing the magnitude of God's gracious blessing on him. It's God's gracious blessing in spite of sin and in the midst of the curse that Adam was under because of sin. You see, now there's a, the question is often raised about the ages that we see here in Genesis chapter 5. And should we take those at face value or are those just symbolic or what's going on with those? And Some have suggested that these figures should be understood as symbolic or that they're encoded with some sort of specific secret honorary significance or that the figures were calculated using some different numeric method. But just as numerous commentators write, there are just none of the proposed alternatives can be substantiated with any level of certainty. Furthermore, we have lists of the lifespans of Sumerian kings from other ancient types of literature, which, and when you uh, read those, you see that their, their lives are very similarly in line. With the, with the ages that we see here in Genesis chapter 6. And that tied with the text in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3, as well as passages like Psalm 90 verse 10, which refer to God limiting lifespans as a general rule, uh, lead us to affirm the traditional understanding is that these numbers should be taken at face value, and that after the flood this changed to what we see now with the average lifespan of human being between the ages of 70 and 80, and the maximum lifespans we see sometimes approaching 120. But whatever the case, one clear implication of these genealogies is that these people actually lived, no matter how long, and that they actually died. You see, and that leads us to the second thing we see in our passage this morning. We see God's just judgment of sin through the curse of death. You see, throughout this genealogy, there's this repeating theme that keeps coming up that is in contrast to God's blessing. It's the ultimate expression of his judgment of sin. And over and over we see it, right? Altogether, they lived X amount of years, and then they died. You see, because no matter how long the patriarchs lived, they still died. You see, our passage shows us God's character, not just in the midst of the curse, not just in his gracious blessing in the midst of the curse, but we see it in death as well. We see God's just judgment of sin through the curse. You see, we see God's just judgment of sin getting worked out in two ways in our passage. The first is through natural death. God allows sin to run its course, and in the end, sin brings about death. No matter how long they lived, we see each of these men, they died. But the other side is a very active way that we see God opposing sin. See, we see his just judgment of sin. And that's, we see that in chapter 6, verses 5 and 7, we read, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, and the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. It says his heart was deeply troubled, and so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. You see, sin had spread so wide, and sin had spread so deep that the only solution that God could, in order to bring about his world, was to wipe it out and start again. And we bristle at that, don't we? We, we want to push back against that. Our gut reaction is that just feels unfair. It just feels unjust. Like how could a God who is loving wipe everyone out? We think, well, couldn't God just give people a little bit longer? And what we see here is God gave humanity 1,600 plus years. 
Couldn't, couldn't God just give them a second chance? God gave them ten generations of chances. Well, couldn't God just give them a, an example to know how they're supposed to live? And we see that Enoch walked with God and no one cared. You see, we want to embrace a God of love and forgiveness and we shy away or we just try to flat out reject a God who is, who is justly judging sin, but the two are inseparable. You see, a God who does nothing about sin is neither just or good. You see, the reason we bristle at God's just judgment of sin through the curse of death is because we are all sinners who are under God's just judgment. You see, as one pastor noted, we are all selective hypocrites. If someone's heart inclination was only evil all the time towards you, and they wouldn't stop no matter what, you would want justice done, wouldn't you? You would want to have justice done. But if you are the sinner, and if your heart is the one that is evil all the time towards others, we want mercy, don't we? You see, we want justice for others, and we want mercy for ourselves. You see, we need to rem- and if God does nothing about sin, then he is not just, and he is not good. You see, we need to remember that sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just a bad decision, as we saw in Genesis 3 and spreading in Genesis 4, that the root of sin is mutinous rebellion. It is a coup, and we dethrone God, and we enthrone ourselves as the arbiter of what is true and right and good, and we say, God, we reject your ways. We're going to choose our ways as the ways that bring about life and that that bring about fulfillment and the ways that bring about blessing. You see, there must be consequences for sin, or God is not just and he is not good. We see in Genesis chapter 5 how bad things has gotten how wide and how deep sin had spread. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination and thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's what theologians refer to as total depravity. One pastor writes it this way, explains it this way. says, everything about us and in us is corrupted by sin. Our mind is corrupted. Our heart is corrupted. Our emotions are corrupted. Our intentions are corrupted. Our hands are corrupted. Our mouth is corrupted. We are made in the image and the likeness of God. We are made for righteousness, but instead we are sinners and we do great evil. The problem is, is that you and I, we only see the outside. But the passage says that God is not just looking at the outside. The passage says that God sees deep into the hearts of humanity. And what God sees when he looks into the hearts of humanity is not people who are deep down good inside. What he sees people is who are wicked all the time. You see, total depravity, it looks like an utter rejection of God and a complete embrace of sin. And this is the default state of the human heart post-fall. People are not inherently good. People are not inherently good. (laughs) No, deep down, the human heart is selfish. And the human heart is wicked. You see that all the time in the show Survivor. (laughs) I know there are many of you who love that show. I think it's so great. The the depravity of the human heart is on full display in that show. (laughs) Because what always happens is when push comes to shove, when a million dollars is on the line, people are not deep down good inside, are they? People will lie and cheat and steal, and people will go around behind each other's back, but it's not really them, is it? It's just the game. No, what you see deep down is that when push comes to shove, the human heart is not good. There's not goodness deep down beneath. There is a selfish wickedness at the heart of humanity. 
And that's what the Bible teaches us. You see, the depravity of man was on full display in the days of Noah as well. The world glorifies sin, and so did the world. Our world glorifies sin, and so did the world of Noah. We're told in chapter 6, verse 4, about the Nephilim, heroes of old, men of renown. These guys were equivalent of modern-day rock stars. And like modern-day stars, their sinful behavior is often glorified when it should be demonized. You see, they're, they're referred to as sons of God who pursue the daughters of men. And now, these verses are among some of the most just widely considered to be really difficult to translate with certainty, to understand with certainty. They're just hard. They're just challenging. Some people think that the Nephilim are fallen angels. If you watch the movie Noah, they're giant rock creatures that help build the ark, right? <laughs> Remember watching that movie for the first time, just like seeing it and thinking, where is my Bible? Like, what? I, I haven't read Genesis in a while, but I don't remember giant rock. What? And so I read, I'm like, oh no, it wasn't there. Okay, good. All right, just making sure I hadn't lost my entire mind. <laughs> but what seems to be the simplest explanation is that the sons of God are men from the line of Seth. You see, right before, in the end of chapter 4, we saw the lineage of Cain. And the lineage of Cain was intended to show the, the depravity of sin and how it kept going deeper and deeper and wider and wider. What we see here is, is the line of Seth, the line of Adam and Seth traced through Adam's lineage. And there's intended to be this contrast between the line of Cain in chapter 4 and the line of Seth and Adam that we see here in chapter 5. But what is sticking out to us here is the simplest explanation is that the sons of God are men from the line of Seth and that the daughters of humans are women from the line of Cain. What we're seeing here is that men who are supposed to be godly are pursuing women who do not love God and do not pursue him, and do not follow after him. They're like too many of the guys that I, decided, <laughs> that I invested in when I was a college pastor and working with InterVarsity. You looked at the, the people that they were dating and you just thought, like, what, what was on your list? Like, breathing and attractive? Is that like, that's the whole list that you had? Listen, buddy, you need, you need a bigger list. Like, the things that need to be on that list are like, loves Jesus, honors the Lord, walks with him, doesn't put up with your sin and your garbage. Like, that's the stuff that needs to be on the list, and that's not what's on the list for the Nephilim. You see, what more we see that, like Lamech from chapter, from chapter 4, they're just taking whoever they want to be their wives. And the language of the passage infers that they took multiple wives, like Lamech did, which we saw is, is not in line with God's design for marriage and sexuality. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and instead of loving and honoring and being faithful to, a, to their wives, what we see is they just go taking whoever they want and treating them as property. You see, these men who should have been godly were embracing sin, and more than that, they were being glorified for it. They were men of renown. You see, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of pursuing their desires, we see that they are glorified. That the culture says, wow, this is this is great. This is what we should, this is what is the best. And we see God's heart breaking. Because not only is the line of Cain being consumed by sin, we see the line of Seth as well. We see God's heart breaking over the, the breadth and the depth of sin. I think it's so important that we see this this morning. And some of us, we need to see this from different ways. You see, some of you this morning, you have been greatly sinned against. You have been greatly sinned against. And you need to see that God's heart in 6-6 is that God is deeply troubled by sin. 
He is not far off and distant. He is not uncaring and uninvolved. God is deeply concerned. His heart is broken and weeping over sin. It grieves him. God is not just an ethereal force. He is a personal God who is personally troubled by what human beings are doing and in their wickedness. But some of you this morning, you overlook the gravity of your own sin and you need to see that God is grieved by your sin, not just the sin of others. One pastor I listened to this week, he wrote it this way. He said, God cares about you more than you care about yourself. God cares about your life more than you care about your own life. God pays closer attention to your life than you pay to it. And God is deeply and intimately involved in your life. He knows your heart and he is grieved by your sin. You see, the Bible talks about God as a father, one who is not distant, one who is not uncaring, but one who desperately loves his kids. And the language that is here in Genesis is of a father who is, who is broken over the sin of his children, who is grieved by it. See, some of you this morning, you need to remember that, that God is just and that he is good and that he sees the sin that has been done to you. And some of you need to remember that God is not overlooking your own sin. And that when we rebel and that when we sin, it grieves the heart of God. Because God is good and because God is just, he actively opposes sin. You see, God does not just gloss over sin. He does not just sit idly by watching, not caring or not doing anything. We see in our passage this morning a God who justly judges sin, whose authority is absolute, whose power is complete. And God judges sin through the curse of death. But the good news in our passage this morning is that we don't just see God's blessing in the midst of the curse, and we don't just see his just judgment of sin through the curse. We see a glimpse of God's power overcoming the curse this morning. You see, despite God's blessing, death seems like it will always have the last word until we get to verse 22. Until we get to Enoch. We see Adam lived and then he died. Seth lived and then he died. Enosh lived and then he died. Kenan lived and then he died. Jared lived and then he died. Mahalalel lived and then he died. Verse 22, Enosh lived. And he walked faithfully with God for 300 years. And then he was no more. The pattern breaks with Enoch. You see, Lamech, what we saw in Genesis chapter 4, he was the seventh in the line of Cain. And what we see is that he is a highlight. He is a picture of the wickedness of humanity. He murders somebody just for looking at him wrong, just for offending him. But here, the seventh in the line of Seth is an altogether different story. We see a godly man who not only did not kill others, but did not experience death himself because God took him away. You see, Enoch in Enoch, we see a chink in the armor of the curse of death, and it gives us great hope. One of my favorite books as a kid was The Hobbit. I loved reading it over and over and over. There's just, just such great stuff in there. Swords, like, you don't really need much more than that as a young boy, but there was swords and dragons, and just, just it was just fantastic, right? And the story, it comes to a head when Bilbo is trying to figure out a way to defeat this dragon who is guarding this massive treasure... And the dragon is basically described as invincible, just invincible. But Bilbo, he spots a weakness in the dragon. He spots a weakness. He spots a chink in his armor. And there is a glimmer of hope. 
You see, Enoch is the chink in the armor of death that gives us hope. You see, it shows us that the curse of death is not unstoppable, that the curse of death is not invincible, that the curse of death can be overcome, that death can be escaped. But if we're not careful, we'll, fall, we'll, we'll miss the good news that Enoch is for us this morning, and we'll fall into a trap that just sucks us down as quickly as death does. You see, it was not the quality of Enoch's life that caused him to escape death. It is so easy to read this verse and see Enoch walked with God. The way Enoch escaped God, oh, that must be because he walked with God. That's not the answer. You see, it was not the quality of Enoch's life that caused him to escape death, just like it was not the quality of Abel's offering that pleased God. Hebrews 11 tells us that it was their faith that pleased God. By faith, Enoch, Hebrews tells us, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He was commended as one who pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, what Enoch believed and what Abel believed was that God was the source of life, that God is the source of life, that God is the one to be sought after, that his ways bring about the blessings, that his ways bring about life and fruitfulness. And that belief, that faith, it changed their lives. You see, faith produces, li- produces changed life because what we believe, it always changes what we do. If you believe that I'm going to give $1,000 to the first person who stands up, you would stand up. None of you do, though. So you don't stand. You see, Enoch's faith caused him to walk with God. A word that we see here for walked refers not to a moment, but to a pattern of intimacy with God. You see, what Enoch believed is that God was the source of life that his ways brought about blessing, that he was the way to joy and happiness. And so Enoch walked with God. It is so important that you see this. Enoch's walk with God is not the thing that gives him escape from death. You see, Enoch gives us hope in the face of the curse of death, not because in the quality of his life we find the way to escape death, but because in the object of his faith we see the one who overcomes death for us. You see, Enoch does not hold the keys to life and death. Oh, but Jesus does. Revelations chapter 1, verse 18, the resurrected and glorified Jesus, he proclaims, I am the living one. I was dead, now look. I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and Hades. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we see that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, Jesus says to Mary, her her brother Lazarus had just died, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He says to Mary, do you believe this? That is the question that is before us this morning. You see, the way to escape death is not by living good enough. It is by putting our faith in the one who is enough. 
See, the one who didn't just escape from death, but the one who went through death in order to defeat it so that we might be escaped from it. You see, Enoch shows us a chink in the armor of death, and in Jesus, the arrow is driven through the heart of the dragon. You see, because Jesus doesn't just offer us an escape from death, what Jesus does is Jesus defeats the curse of death altogether. You see, Jesus, what, we, what he does is he defeats the curse by overcoming sin itself. You see, what we really need saving from is not just the inevitability of death. We need saving from is our sin. One commentator writes it this way. Even if we could succeed in eliminating every disease from the record and eradicating all threats to our health, the world would still be fallen. Even if we could isolate the genetic triggers for aging and slow them down or reverse them, you see, sin would not be eliminated. All of, a, all of the advances that our technological world has to offer may make our lives easier and may make them longer, but it can never cure the human heart. You see, what we really need saving from is not death. What we really need saving from is our sin. Our hearts without Jesus are wicked all the time. The desires of our hearts are opposed to him. That is the truth of what is true of the human heart. You see, what we need is new hearts. And Jesus is the only one who can give it to you. You see, your good deeds will never be enough. But the good news is that they don't have to be. (laughs) That's what the Apostle Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot inherit the kingdom on your own accord. You are not enough, he says. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 54, he says, But when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying will be written that has come true, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and let nothing move you. You see, Jesus was enough. And when we are clothed with his imperishable righteousness, Paul is saying that the sting of death is gone. Jesus' words to Mary as her brother Lazarus has died. He said, those who die, they might live in me. When my uncle died last year, I got to preach at his funeral, and it was sad, but there was great joy in this because death was not the end. You see, sin had not won. Cancer had not beaten him. His death was swallowed up in victory because his faith was in the person and the work of Jesus to make him right with God. You see, Jesus had defeated sin, and so in my uncle's death, death did not have the final word. Jesus did, the one whose life could not be kept in the grave. You see, without Jesus, death reigns. Oh, but through him there is life. And this life is, this offer of life is open to you this morning. Romans 5, 19 and 21 says it this way. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the one man, the Christ, the many will be made righteous. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also great grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our 
the offer is open to you this morning. That you might come and find life in him. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. See, there are some of you that here this morning who have not put your faith in Jesus. You have not trusted him to be the one who has paid the price for your sin. And right down this morning, you stand under the just judgment of God. And I am here this morning pleading with you. Receive God's offer of grace for you. Don't stay this morning the way that you came in. You see, it is God's patience, First Peter tells us, or Second Peter tells us, that is giving you time to repent. So don't wait any longer. God's hand is open to you. You see, all of the patriarchs, they lived, but they died. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, the question this morning is like Enoch, are we walking with God? Saving faith is not just an assent to what is true. It is evidenced by a life that walks with God, not in our ways, but in his ways. And so the question is, are you walking with God? Are you walking with him in the life that he died so that you might be able to live? And I just need you to hear this. Not out of duty or obligation, not out of just moral guilt, but do you believe like Enoch did that God's ways bring? that he is the source of life, that he is what you need, and that in pursuing him, in seeking him, you actually find life. Oh, that we would believe like Enoch did, and that what it would produce in us, our lives that honor the Lord, our lives that are characterized by walking faithfully with God for however many years he would give us. You see, before us this morning is the reality of death, but it's the way out as well. You see, in communion, what we are remembering and what we are celebrating is the way out from death. And in Christ, we are forgiven and that we are accepted by God, that we were rebellious sinners but are now children of God. That's what we're celebrating as we take communion and Jesus came so that in wiping out sin, God would not also have to wipe out all of us as sinners. But in Jesus, God gets both justice and mercy. Our sin is justly paid for, and, and we also receive grace. You see, the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and his blood, which were broken for us and shed for us as he did what was, what was right, as he mastered sin, as he lived righteously, as he walked perfectly with God, as he walked faithfully with God, not for 300 of his 365 years like Enoch did, but for every hour of every. You see, what we are doing in pro, as we take communion is we are proclaiming the gospel. We are reminding ourselves and reminding one another who God is and all that he has done. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not save you. The Bible is clear that faith in Jesus alone is the thing that changes our status and our standing with God. Nothing else does that. 
And so if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion this morning. Do it as a celebration of all that God has done for you. There are two tables in the back, one on the left and one on the right. During our time of worship, during, as we sing, as you feel fit, whenever you feel led, go back and take communion. At River City, you just dip the bread in the juice. It's a time for you to remember and celebrate and do it as you feel led. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. And as you do, I would encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to show you his blessing in the midst of your sin. His unmerited, undeserved blessing in the midst of your sin. But ask him as well to remind you of his just judgment of sin. Not just the sin of others, but yours as well. And so as you take communion, as you sense the weight of God's just judgment of sin, you might also enjoy thoroughly the grace that he offers you in Jesus. You see, the gospel is really good news, but it's good news because there is bad news. If you never wrestle with God's just judgment of sin, the gospel will never be good news to you, and it will never actually empower you to live life differently. Oh, but if the gospel is good news in light of your sin, oh, then it will change you. As you take communion, ask God to empower you to love him and to live for him by faith in him, as Enoch did, as Abel did. For your good, for your joy, but most of all, for God's great glory in all things. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, we just, we, God, we just willingly lay ourselves down and say we are not enough. God, that we justly deserve your just judgment of sin. God, that we are rebels, that we have sought to dethrone you and enthrone ourselves, that we have sought to replace uh, our will as your will. God, and we just confess that we are righteously and rightly under the just judgment of your sin. God, and we come this morning, God, saying that we need you. God, and if our faith is in you, God, we come this morning grateful that the just judgment of sin has been paid for by Jesus. God, and so, God, I pray that you would fill us with great gladness this morning if our hope is in you. God, that we would rightly see how much we needed you and that we would graciously see how greatly you have met our need. God, thank you that Enoch, God, thank you that he is a glimmer of hope, that he shows us that you have power over death and ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus, you defeat death altogether for us on our behalf. And so God, we ask you, God, cause us to put our faith in you, not just the first day, but every day. God, so that we might be characterized by people who please you. Thank you that in Christ we do please you. Thank you that it's not our perfection of our lives that pleases you, but it's the perfection of your son Jesus' life whose credit we have. God, and so because we have that, even though we don't deserve it, God, would you, would you cause us to live worthy of that? Would you cause us to be, our lives to be characterized by righteousness? by walking faithfully with you, Jesus. Not to get something from you, but because by faith you have given us all that we could need. God, for your glory, for our good, we pray. Amen.